We're going to continue on this morning uh, back in the Gospel of Mark. It's been a few weeks since we've back, uh, been in this Gospel, so I'm going to uh, backtrack a, a little bit. Uh, for those of you that have been here, it'll be some reminders um, to you. We, um, we're in the last week of Jesus' life before the cross. The Father's divine timing was unfolding. The, the Son's obedience to the will of the Father had brought Jesus for such a time as this. Yeah, right down to the very day, down to the very moment, this was unfolding. This was, this was God's divine timing coming before this world. The Son of God had come into this world with just one purpose and one mission, and that was to save sinners. It's why Jesus came. And here He is in our text this morning, just days away from the cross. The last week of Jesus' life on earth in this Gospel began in chapter 11. Jesus had left that upper region of Galilee in chapter 10, where he had spent two years of ministering, there ministering and preaching repentance, preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, healing the sick, teaching all the people that had come to him, discipling his disciples that he had called. And Jesus now had left that area of Galilee. He made his way towards Jerusalem. He knew that his time was coming to go to the cross. This last week of Jesus' life here on earth, it started with the triumphal entry of Jesus riding in on the back of that colt into the city of Jerusalem on that day. The, the, the shouts and the praise from the people on that singing, Hosanna, Hosanna as Jesus rode into that Temple Mount. Remember that when He came into the Temple Mount on that day, it were told that it was evening time. It was late in the, in the afternoon. And we're told that Jesus began to look around there on the Temple Mount that day. It doesn't even tell us what He was looking at. But I would read into this that what Jesus saw that day as he came into that city, what he saw, I believe, saddened his heart. He desired to see so much more from his people. And I believe it's the same heart of our Lord today. He desires to see so much more, even from us. That he, he wants to do great things in our lives. He wants to see much fruit come forth out of our lives. We know that Jesus and His disciples, they left that Temple Mount that day and they made that two-mile journey back to Bethany where they would spend the night. On the next day, now Monday, Jesus and the disciples, they returned to Jerusalem. They made that walk once again from the Mount of Olives and they came down towards the city of Jerusalem and on that walk, and as they were traveling, Jesus, we're told, it says that He was hungry. And we're told that He saw in the distance, He saw this fig tree, and Jesus began to walk towards that fig tree that was probably right off of the beaten path, right off of the road. When He walked up to it, He stood in front of that tree, and he had this great desire. He saw it all bloomed out with green leaves from a distance. But as he approached and he stood in front of that tree, he realized that there was no fruit upon that fig tree. He came to that tree with great desire. And even though that he was hungry in the flesh, and even though he maybe have desired physical food, his greatest desire was that he would see spiritual fruit on that fig tree, but we're told that he saw nothing but leaves. Israel, 
God's people. They had all of the appearance of being a godly people, a religious people, but there was no fruit. And I believe that it grieved our Lord as He stood there in front of this tree. And we're told that Jesus spoke these words to that tree on that day. Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And that day, Jesus cursed that fig tree. And we're told also that the disciples heard Him utter those words. They went on that day and they went down into the city. They came into the Temple Mount and the first thing that Jesus saw, just like the day before, is He saw these money changers. They were exchanging money for the people that were there for the feast. He saw all the, the, the merchants that were out there that were selling all the animals, the, the lambs and the oxen and the doves that were going to be used in the sacrifice for the Passover. They were making money off of the people. And we're told that Jesus on that day, He went and He overturned. In righteous anger, He overturned the tables of those money changers. And He chased out all the merchants that were selling their wares there up on the Temple Mount. And he, we also read that it was a fulfillment of prophecy, of Jeremiah's prophecy that this took place. It was a fulfillment of something that Jesus already knew was going to take place. None of this took Him by surprise. Three weeks ago, when we were in this last part of chapter 11, it's now Tuesday. Jesus is coming back. He left that day and He came back on Tuesday. And as they passed that fig tree, Peter came up and said to Jesus, he says, Lord, he said, Rabbi, look. He says, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. It was withered. It was dead from the root up. So Jesus took that opportunity with His disciples at that moment to teach them a lesson in faith. He taught them about prayer and faith. And He taught them about prayer and forgiveness and the importance of forgiveness. Every opportunity the Lord took to teach and to disciple His men. We finished in chapter 11 and verse 27 where the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to Jesus on that day and they began to question His authority. By what authority are you doing these things, they said to Jesus. And who gave you this authority to do these things? I think what they were doing here is that they were, they were looking like many other times for a way to trap Jesus. They, uh, let me give you some words of wisdom. Don't ever try to trap Jesus in any way. Don't ever try to outthink Him. Don't ever think that you're going to get the best on Him. Don't ever think you're going to outsmart Him because Jesus Christ always wins. And so these religious leaders of the day, they weren't going to pull anything over on Jesus either. Jesus in His wisdom, He stopped their mouths that day. He says... To them, I have a question for you. He says, was the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? And Jesus saying to them, He knew that if they answered to Him that it was from heaven, Jesus could say to them, then why didn't you listen to John? Why didn't you listen to the prophet, John the Baptist? And if you're saying that He was from men, then they became fearful of the people that were following Jesus, what they might do to Him. Jesus in His wisdom knew exactly how to approach these religious leaders. He said to them at that moment, He says, neither will I tell you because we're told that these, these religious leaders, they couldn't say anything. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority that I do these things. 
Jesus never cast his pearls before the swine. He never let them come in and try to to trick him in that way. That same day on the mount, Jesus was also confronted by the Pharisees and also the Herodians that were sent to him. And he was also put into a place of having to have a dialogue with the Sadducees that day. This was a day of teaching. This was a day of Jesus correcting even these religious leaders. They tried to trap him over a theological question. Don't ever try to do that either. We see one of the scribes coming up to Jesus and saying, which is the first commandment of all? He's the one that wrote the commandments. He's the one that that was the originator of all these things. And here they are calling the Son of God into question of which is the greatest commandment. Jesus is never fooled by man's religion, but we see it in our world, don't we? Look at, look, at, look at all the different religions that are in our world. All the fleshly works of people that think somehow or another they're going to go to heaven because they've done so many wonderful deeds for mankind. They've done so many things. And you know, the Lord is never fooled by those things. He's never tripped by man's wisdom. We stand naked before the God with whom we have to do. You know, there's nothing hidden How many times have you tried to hide something from God? How many times have you tried to do something in the dark thinking that God didn't see it? And God sees it all. There's no act that is ever done in secret that won't be exposed. Jesus sees the cup of cold water that is given in His name. He sees the sparrow that falls to the ground dead. He sees uh, the one out of a hundred sheep that has gone astray. He sees that. And He goes after the one. He sees the prodigals who have walked away from Him. He sees that widow that gives all that she has. He weeps over the souls of those who refuse to turn to Him. What I know about my Lord is that He's a very patient God. He's slow to anger. He's merciful towards us. He's gracious. He's forgiving. And He wants to restore. He wants to do that in our life. God help us that we just would become these open books before God. God, You see me. You know me. You know everything about me. Even the things that I don't bring out, You already know it. You have a heavenly Father that loves you. That wants to work in you and restore you. There's a couple of other instances that happened on that Temple Mount that day that are not recorded in Mark's Gospel. You can read uh, in one of the other Gospels the parable of the two sons that Jesus spoke that day. Also the parable of the wedding feast He spoke to them that day. A lot of teaching going on from the Temple. Jesus here, even though He is just days away from the cross, He's still ministering. He's still teaching. He's still reaching out to the people. This parable in Mark chapter 12, our text this morning, it's found also in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 21 and Luke 20. Let's first read it and then I'm going to come back and we're going to talk about the first 12 verses here. Verse 1, Then Jesus began to speak to them, in parables. He's speaking about uh, the chief priests that were there and the Pharisees and the scribes who had gathered around Jesus. He says to them, he says, a man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat 
and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. The vine dressers, they took the servant and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him, they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another servant. And him they killed. And many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, verse 6, still still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took the beloved son and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you religious leaders not ever read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes and they sought to lay hands on Him, but He feared the multitude for they knew that He had spoken the parable against them. So they left Him and they went their way. Again, Jesus now has an audience. And some of that audience was this religious leaders that were there. The rulers of Israel. The ones who should have known. The ones who should even be able to understand and interpret and come to an understanding of this parable. We read in in verse 1, when Jesus began to speak to them in parables, you see, parables, they're just simply stories. They're illustrations. And they have a a purpose for a teacher to give a, a story and an illustration was to bring something out that was very familiar to them in the day. That was a, a parable. And, and, and in the teaching of the day, that was very common in the way that many teachers would teach. To those that would hear and those that could understand, it would many times bring forth some new truths to them. But it's also important to note and to know that not everyone that was standing there was able to understand, was able to perceive. And the ones that are standing there that did perceive, some of them, their hearts were so hard, they didn't want to receive. They didn't want to take on board what Jesus was saying here. We're told in verse 1 that that the man, this man that is spoken of here, that planted this vineyard, is God the Father. This is is the parable that Jesus is wanting these religious leaders to grab hold of. The man that planted the vineyard is God the Father. The vineyard that Jesus speaks of in this parable is the people of Israel. The nation of Israel. The Jews and these religious leaders that were listening to this parable, I believe that they understood what Jesus was saying here when He began to speak about a vineyard. They knew the Scriptures. They knew what the Old Testament spoke of in relationship to the vineyard. And this was a picture in their mind that they had had for a long time. The vineyard, a picture of the people of Israel. 
They might have even been thinking as Jesus began to speak this parable about Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. This is how it reads. Now let me, and that me there is Isaiah, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard, God's vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Look what God has done for the nation of Israel. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and he cleared out all of its stones and he planted it with the choices of vines. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. And, and, it, and it goes on in Isaiah in verse 2, it says, So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. He expected that this well-tilled ground, this well-prepared vineyard, would bring forth good grapes. But it goes on to say, but it brought forth wild grapes. It it brought forth grapes that were not even edible. And it goes on to say, Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done? What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? What more could I have done? God says... Look what I've done. Look how I've prepared it. What more could I have done? What more could God have done in our lives? What more could He give you to give you everything you need to live a fruitful life for Him? What more could God have done for you and I And now please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more on it, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There's no question here of what we're talking about. The vineyard is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are His pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, there was oppression. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. That was the state of Israel. How much more could I have done for you? I I read this quote. It's a pretty convicting quote. It's by Charles Spurgeon. It, it, It reads this way in relationship to what we read in Isaiah here. I've been thinking about the advantages of my own position. Speaking about his position in Christ. His position even as a, as a pastor. Towards the Lord, he says, and I've been lamenting with great shamefacedness that I'm not bringing forth such fruit to Him as my position demands. Considering our privileges, our advantages, and the opportunities, I fear that, I, that many of us have need to feel great searchings of the heart. Look what God has done for you. Look what God has done for me. And, 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 and God help me that, that I would be a person with great desire that I might see fruit come forth out of my life. You've given me everything that I need for life and godliness. You've given me everything. You've given me Your Holy Spirit. You've given me Your power to produce fruit in my life. 
When's the last time you've considered what God has done for you? The owner of this vineyard, remember it's God Himself, who had given every piece of equipment in this parable. He gave it to the cultivators. He gave it, in a sense, to the spiritual leaders of Israel. He put within that vineyard this hedge or this wall that marked out the vineyard's boundaries. It also kept out the robbers. And it defended it from the wild beasts from coming into the vineyard. He gave it a wine press. And in this wine press uh, uh, that they would crush the grapes and would lead into a vat that would capture all the the fruit of the vine. He put a tower and he built a tower that was there that would store the, the wine and where the cultivators would also lodge within that tower and that that vineyard. He would place them there to watch over the vineyard. To protect the vineyard from robbers. And, And from this time that God had given all these things, they didn't do well. They didn't do with all that God had given to them. They didn't do well. These were the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel. These were the ones that should have been protecting. These are the ones that should have been teaching truth. These are the ones that should have been unveiling all of these things to God's people. The vine dressers. The cultivators, we might call them the rulers of Israel throughout their history, the history of the chief priests and the other priests that worked within the temple, the elders and the scribes, they were all given these things by God. They were given the responsibility to tend the vineyard, to take care of the vineyard, to protect God's beloved vineyard. Paul, in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, he said this to his fellow Jews. He says, Brothers, don't put false confidence in your heritage. You see, that's what these religious leaders were doing. They were putting a false confidence in their their race and their privileges that had been given to them by God. Don't ever do that, church. Don't ever lean on just because God is blessed, He calls you a child of God, and allow that to be an occasion for sin, an occasion for compromise. Paul went on to say to his fellow Jew, indeed you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law. And you make your boast in God. And you know His will. And you approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And you're confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. Look what God had given to them. They had all the privileges. They had all the things of a, of a people of God whom God loved. In Romans 9, Paul also said this of his fellow Jews in verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from according to the flesh Christ came who is over all the eternal. Bless God. Amen. Paul, who was a Jew also, he realized that God had done so much. 
in his own life. He, he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee himself before he knew Christ. He realized how much he had in Christ. What privileges had been given to him and how he wasted the church of Jesus Christ. He persecuted it beyond measure. And he came to the realization of how privileged he was. And I, and I wonder how privileged you feel in your heart this morning that you're called a child of God. Look what God has done in you. The servants in this parable, in this parable, excuse me, they're the prophets. They were sent out by the owner, by God. They're sent to the nation of Israel. God's servants. God's instruments that He could use to speak to His people. They were the mouthpiece to Israel. In Joshua 14.7, we're told that Moses was a servant. We're told that Aaron was also a servant of God. He spoke on behalf of God. In 2 Samuel 3.18, we read that David was a servant. As well as all the prophets, we read in Amos 3.7 and Jeremiah 7.25 and Zechariah 1.7. These were all servants of God. The prophets of God. That went out and spoke on behalf of God to the people of Israel. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, that hallmark of faith in verse 37, we're told that these prophets, these servants of God, that they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted and they were slain with a sword. These were God's servants. That God, the vine, He sent them out the nation of Israel. And they stoned them. They killed them. The vine dressers. In this parable, it's, it's Israel's leaders. The religious leaders. We're told in, in verse 3, it says, and they took the servant and they beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. And then in verse 4, again, he sent them another servant. And at him they threw stones and they wounded him in the head and they, they sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another servant. And him they killed. And many others beating some and killing some. These religious leaders made no appeal for the prophet John the Baptist. They didn't even defend him. He was beheaded in that prison. And there was no defense by these religious leaders on his behalf. The prophet that came in the New Testament that came making the way for the coming Messiah. Preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand in repentance. They didn't defend John the Baptist either. Jesus in Luke's Gospel in chapter 11, verse 44, He says this of these religious leaders. He says, Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are like graves which are not seen. He says, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers, a lawyer by the way is a, a scribe. One of the scribes answered and said to Jesus, teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. In other words, you're speaking bad about us also. And Jesus said to the scribes, Woe to you also, 
you lawyers. For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple, yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered them. This is the religious leaders of Israel. The ones that should have been instructing the people and caring for the people were the ones that were hindering them from coming. And he said, and as he said these things, we're told, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things laying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he he might say that they might accuse him. You see, when a heart is hard, when a heart has reached that point of just no, it's not receptive, it doesn't matter what's said. It doesn't even matter how many woes are pronounced. They still won't turn. They still won't believe. Remember, when Stephen was standing before the religious leaders in Acts chapter 7, they were preparing to stone him as he gave this long history message as he preached to these religious leaders and they they took him out of the temple and they, they took him out to stone him. And Stephen said to them in that moment, He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He asked them a question. Remember, he's right there before them being ready to be stoned to death. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have have not kept it. These words would lead Stephen to be stoned by these religious leaders that day. The prophets sent out by God, a merciful God, to His people, to get their attention, to, 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 to bring truth to them, to, to, to cause them to turn away from their rebellion and their idolatry and to turn back to God. I send you prophets. And you killed them. And after all of that, in verse 6, it says, therefore, still having one son, his beloved. He also sent him. He sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. Oh no, they won't. (laughs) He's standing right in front of you right now. They'll respect my son. Remember, Jesus Christ came into this world as what? A servant. Mark 10.45, our key verse to this Gospel, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give His life a ransom for many. But those vine dressers, verse 7, said among themselves. In other words, they were plotting among themselves. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Do you see what's in the hearts of these religious leaders? So they took the beloved son and they killed him and they cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And I believe that this is just a, a, a direct, this is a prediction of Jesus' death right here. He's telling these religious leaders of his coming death, he's telling them also that it's going to be given to others. And I believe even that it's going to be given over to the Gentiles. And you can read, and I quite often tell you, if you want to read about Israel past, read Romans chapter 9. You want to read about Israel present day today, read Romans 10. Israel future, Romans chapter 11. And you'll see that God had a plan and has a plan all the way through Israel's history. He's merciful. He's going to save a remnant of His people, Israel. But here we see that Israel has stumbled over Jesus Christ. These religious leaders there that day, the vine dressers, the ones that should have understood this parable, the ones that should have been taking it to heart are the ones that were going to just in a, in a couple of days, they were going to take the Son of God and they were going to destroy Him, kill Him, and cast him out of the vineyard. Jesus, in a sense, in this parable, was giving these religious leaders a history of their disobedience, a history of their rebellion, as they really killed the prophets of God. They dishonored them and killed them. I think at this point, as Jesus gave this parable to those that were listening there, these religious leaders in particular, that they were starting to put it together. They were starting to see what He might be saying here in these words. I think they were familiar already with the vineyard. They were familiar with the fact that they had killed the prophets. They knew that they were standing there in the One who claimed to be Messiah. I think they were starting to put it together. But you know, have you ever noticed how truth hurts? Have you ever noticed how when sin is exposed in our lives, it hurts, doesn't it? Jesus in this moment was exposing these religious leaders. He went on to say to them in verse 10, have you religious leaders, have you not even read this Scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus here is quoting from a psalm that these religious leaders would have known. Psalm 118 Verse 22 and 23. Jesus then challenged them on knowing their Scriptures. Have you not even read this Scripture? Is what He says to them. <laughs> if anybody knew Him, it was these religious leaders standing there. He challenges them on that. Pride is ugly, isn't it? It's an ugly thing. The pride that we see in others, but most importantly, the pride that we see in ourselves. It's an ugly thing. It'll actually keep a person in their sin. Pride will keep a person from repentance. Pride will keep a person spiritually blinded 
Pride will keep a person from eternal life. Pride will keep a person in, in their religion. It'll keep them in their religion. Pride was in the garden with Adam and Eve. And pride is going to be in the last book of the Bible in the tribulation period when people are refusing to call out to God as God is pouring out His wrath upon this Christ-rejecting world. Pride is going to stand in the way and they're going to refuse to repent and to turn to the Lord. It's an ugly thing. We might say that pride is the sin of all sins. And, it, and, it, and it's something that we all contend with ourselves. These religious leaders in that moment, though they were making sense, I believe, of a lot of what Jesus was saying, their pride would not allow them. They wanted the, the inheritance to be theirs. They wanted all the, the, the fame. They wanted everything that, that went along with their position. They wanted that more than they wanted God. And, and just like people today that want their sin more than they want God. The chief cornerstone. We might also say that it's the foundation stone. We might call it the first stone. And it's the stone on which all other stones will be placed upon. This foundation stone that actually joins two walls together. That is a, it sets everything straight. This foundation stone, this chief cornerstone, is Jesus Christ Himself. The psalm these religious leaders should have known was the psalm that I already read, Psalm 118, verse 21 and 25. It says this, I will praise Thee, for Thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation, the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, send now prosperity. Those are the words that they were crying out as Jesus rode down into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey. Hosanna, Hosanna. That day, save now. Send prosperity. Psalm 118, these religious leaders should have known. They also should have known Isaiah 28, verse 14. It says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death, listen to this, listen to the heart. We have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. That's pride. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. This was all foretold. This was something they should have known. Jesus in this moment giving this parable to these religious leaders and all who were standing there listening. They would have known Isaiah. They would have known Psalms. And then remember Peter, even moving on into the book of Acts, when Peter stood up or, uh, and, and he actually preached a message 
to these religious leaders on, an, on one occasion. It came to pass that there were rulers, elders, and scribes in front of Peter and John one day, as well as Annas, the high priest. I mean, he had the whole party there. Caiaphas was there. John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest. He had them all right in front of him. They were gathered together in Jerusalem, and when they had set Peter and John in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? And then Peter, we're told, and make note of this, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he said to these rulers, he says, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made whole, they had raised that man at the gate to his feet, the lame man, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. None of this left their minds. None of this thought. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, the headstone. And then he says this verse, verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. That's Jesus Christ. Paul wrote about this stone in Ephesians 2.17. He says, He came and He preached peace to you who are afar off. He's speaking to all of us who are Gentiles here today. And to those who are near, He's speaking to the Jew that we have here today. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built, here it is, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building Listen to this. And whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Were those stones being stacked upon that chief cornerstone? Were the, 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 the apostles or that foundation? And, and then these living stones are you and I. Isn't that incredible? That the work, that the Spirit of God in you. And lastly, Peter wrote of this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Coming to Him as to a living stone. Notice it's not a, a dead stone. This is a living stone. Coming to Him who is a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. So also as living stones, this is plural, are being built up into a spiritual house. The living stone and living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, and here it is, Peter saying it again, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. He's quoting 
from Isaiah 28, verse 16. He goes on to say, Therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. But to those who are disobedient, listen to what it says, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He's quoting again Psalm 118.22. And the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Quoting Isaiah 8.14. They stumble being disobedient to the Word to whom they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation. Listen to this church. This applies to you. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Gentiles, (laughs) listen. God gave all of this to His people, His chosen people, Israel. And in their disobedience and in their rejection, salvation has come to you and I Gentiles. But you know what? God has a plan for Israel. He's going to save a remnant of His people. That's what tells me, that's what shows me how gracious and merciful our God is. With these words, look what happened in verse 12. It says, And they sought to lay hands on Him. (laughs) You think they weren't kind of getting a grip on what Jesus was saying here? They sought, these religious leaders sought to lay hands on Him, but they feared the multitudes, for they knew that He had spoken the parable against them. So they left Him and they went away. Jesus' time had not yet come. It wasn't the appointed time. It was coming, but it wasn't the appointed time yet. And here's Jesus standing before these religious leaders, knowing that just in a couple of days, they were going to turn Him over to the Romans. He was going to be put on a cross and crucified. And, and, And they knew I think they knew, but their pride wouldn't let loose of them. They knew that every sign, everything that He did, proclaimed who He was. But their pride wouldn't allow them to believe. What they desired more than salvation was fame. What they desired more than anything was their prestige, their positions. If you're here this morning... And you sense that there's area of your life that you're holding on to that's prideful between you and the Lord. I don't think that we could go through a message like this and point it at all these religious leaders and say, that's not me. That's not who I am. I think we need to, we need to look at ourselves. We need to say, God, this is me. <laughs> I, I have my own pride issues. And God, would you forgive me? Would you break up my hard heart? Would you do a fresh work in my heart that I might hear you? That I might have my, uh, my spiritual eyes open to you? Again, because I, I, I'm not seeing clearly right now. I'll tell you what, pride will be that thing that will ham- hamper you. It'll hinder you. It'll keep you from really being able to take hold of what God has for you. And so... What a time. Let's have, let's have the worship team come up. I would ask that all of us this morning that we would just say, God, you know me. You know my heart. You know what's within me. You know the pride in whatever area that is that I'm dealing with. And God, would you forgive me of my pride? Would you work a fresh work in me? Would you stir my heart up afresh? Would you let me have praise and worship and thankfulness on my heart and on my lips like I've never had before? Because I'll tell you what, that pride will keep you from moving forward in your walk with Christ. And so let's all, let's all stand. Read ahead in your Bibles.
uh, in Mark's gospel here. Jesus is going to have more time uh, this next week when we get it on the on the mount that day. And um, so read ahead. Let's worship the Lord. Let's set our hearts right before him right now.